Well, good morning. Thank you for being here. Travis is on vacation, and you know what that means. He's not here to preach, so. I've been given the challenge of preaching Psalm 102 this morning, and uh, you heard it. It's pretty, pretty deep affliction that this person is suffering. So let's look at his word, and we'll um, consider what the Lord wants us to think about this morning. Pray with me before we begin, would you please? Father, there are things this morning that are going to be challenging to us and were challenging to me as I prepared to speak on Psalm 102. We ask that our hearts would be open to consider who you are in a deeper way, that we would be challenged to be more faithful because of what your word has said about you this morning, and we ask that you bless our time together in Psalm 102. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Well, let me begin by describing to you what I think God wants us to consider in Psalm 102. We have on the menu this morning sort of a detailed description of this author's personal affliction in almost haunting detail. In fact, the author describes his affliction so hauntingly that I'm convinced that he's astonished by the level of it. His astonishment at the level of his affliction leads me to think that for him this can only be described as otherworldly affliction. You get the sense that for this author there's something unnerving and sensational about his affliction. There's a troubling sense of awe and mystery and longing to get to the source of the affliction. Let me explore this idea with you a little deeper. When I read this, I think that for him there's something even divinely beautiful and mysteriously providential that he senses about his affliction. And I don't mean by beautiful that it's something attractive or pretty to him. I mean there's something heavenly and irresistibly fascinating about it because of the depth of it. Something so mesmerizing in its otherworldliness that it's beginning to bring an awakening for him. I sense that his description of his affliction is so unusual to his line of thinking, so out of the ordinary, so unexpected, because of its arresting and stunning wonder for him. It's as if this affliction is awakening in him a renewed sense of God's mysterium tremendum et fascinans, that Latin phrase, that means to tremble at God with fascination. A mystery that deeply attracts you, but it repels you at the same time because you know you don't want to go too deeply into it. A mystery that you long to look into to get a deeper glimpse of God's being and purpose while at the same time being kind of afraid to look too closely. 
It's almost as if in the recognition of the degree of his affliction, he's been awakened to consider a new understanding of God's purpose and meaning about his existence that he didn't have before. And so Psalm 102 begins with a personal petition for help that we're very familiar with in the Lament Psalms. This is an individual lament psalm. And he begins and he says, Hear my prayer, O Lord. Let my cry come to you. Do not hide your face from me in the day of my distress or my trouble. Incline your ear to me. Answer me speedily in the day when I call. The ESV translates the title of Psalm 102 like this. A prayer of one afflicted when he is faint and pours out his complaint before the Lord. But I don't think we should think of that word complaint, that English translation of the Hebrew word, as the author simply coming before the Lord, whining and grumbling about his circumstance. The Hebrew word translated as complaint actually means musing. The word is often translated as meditates in the Old Testament. He's, he's daydreaming about his affliction. The author's having a conversation with himself about the level of his affliction that he's experiencing in his mind in the curious circumstances of it. Why is it so severe? He's meditating about the level of his anxiety and his troubled condition. He's pondering it. He's reflecting on it. He wants to know its meaning and significance and why it might be happening and what it implies. And in his poetic music, he seems to be wondering, why is this happening? What does this mean? And when he prays, hear my prayer, incline your ear to me and answer me speedily, these are all commands he's making of God. There's an expectation that God must hear his prayer, must bend down closer to him so as to not misunderstand it, and then hurry to give him the answer. In other words, Yahweh, don't just casually listen as if I'm just one of the many noises out there clamoring for your attention. Don't listen as if you're preoccupied with something else. And my musing is just getting in the way of more serious matters for you. Don't approach it that way. Hear my prayer with intention, interest, and understanding that I know that you have for me. I just sense it's not there right now. Let my plea for understanding come into your presence. Don't conceal yourself from my affliction. That phrase, do not hide your face from me, has a lot of serious implications in the Old Testament. 
At the heart of it, it means when you hide your face from me, it suggests that you're going to withdraw your favor from me. And God might be hiding his face from you for any number of different reasons, and that's why he's reflecting so seriously on his circumstances. Is this happening because God is hiding his face from me? Is that why I'm so seriously afflicted? Is it because God is angry with me of some evil that I've done? Is God angry because of some spiritual or ritual uncleanness and pollution in me? And then in verses 3 and 5, he begins to detail the physical description of his affliction, which is why he's wondering what it could mean. And you can hear how serious it is. For my days pass away like smoke, and my bones burn like a furnace. My heart is struck down like grass and has withered. I forget to eat my bread. Because of my loud groaning, my bones cling to my flesh. Who would describe their affliction that way? And so considering just these short verses right here, this is more than just being overwhelmed, isn't it? He's saying my life is failing. It's all used up. I'm at my end. I'm finished. Even my bones feel like they're on fire. My heart has been fatally wounded. Literally, it says, your affliction has blighted my heart. I even stopped caring if I should eat or not because it doesn't make any difference to me anymore. Wow. Who could forget to eat? He's so busy thinking about his pitiful condition and forgetting to eat that he's saying, Lord, my my body is like just skin and bones. This has been going on for some time, and Lord, I need to know why. I'm tempted to say that this is a person who's greatly troubled. But troubled isn't even the right word to explain his level of anxiety even though it's there in verse 2 where it says, do not hide your face from me in the day of my distress or my trouble. That word trouble means to be so enveloped or so wrapped in darkness that it has defeated you. He's becoming weak and feeble because he knows he's wasting away, because he's clothed in darkness because of his complete loss of intimacy with God. He's so distraught by what's going on that now he's pouring out his concern. It's spilling forth his meditation. It's just gushing out of him now. Folks, he's not just kind of worried He's so overwhelmed and distraught in his affliction that he's ready to burst if he doesn't get some answers immediately as to what's going on. Please answer me. Don't leave me like this, Lord. 
Can you even imagine describing some level of affliction that you might have like this? Your bones are on fire? It starts to become pretty obvious right about here that he knows this level of affliction is so far from normal, so far out of the ordinary, that he knows without a doubt that God has his hand in it. This is so much more than, well, you know, I woke up today and I threw my legs over the side of the bed, and you know, I just kind of felt a little funky. You read it? This guy is completely disoriented. His reality has moved into another dimension because of his affliction. We're not talking simple body aches here. We're talking otherworldly distress and affliction that looks like death is looming. Now, before you think that that goes too far, think about with me what it means for God to be hiding his face from you. It could be cause for the beginning of great loneliness because it implies that God has abandoned you. And he actually depicts this in verses 6 and 7. Oddly, he compares himself to three types of birds in 6 and 7. He says, I am a pelican of the wilderness. I am like an owl of the desert. I lie awake and am like a sparrow alone on the housetop. So he's meditating about his affliction, and he sees himself as a couple of liturgically unclean birds that hang out in places of ruin in the desert. Describing this wretched loneliness he feels when he's separated from God as he is. He even brings in the picture of some normally happy little birds like sparrows that kind of are social and hang out together. But now he's all alone by himself like he's on the top of a housetop and he's watching. When God hides his face, it could mean that God will no longer protect you from the many evils and troubles in the world. Hiding his face could mean he's no longer present with you and the level of your intimacy and relationship with him has now been severed. And that leads to wondering whether God has perhaps seen some obstinate faithlessness in your actions, perhaps even unbeknownst to you, implying that perhaps God thinks you've put your trust into something other than God himself. Maybe you've gone after other idols, which is frequently mentioned in the Old Testament. Hiding his face could be a sign of God's present anger and wrath with you. But folks, think what it means to even recognize that God has hidden his face from you. It implies not only a previous deep intimacy with God that is now severed, but it also implies the possibility of impending death. Listen to the similarities in Psalm 88 that also sense the impending doom associated with being separated from God. For example, Psalm 88, verses 1 through 5. O Lord God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you. 
Incline your ear to my cry. That sounds just like 102, doesn't it? For my soul is full of troubles and my life draws near to Sheol. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am a man who has no strength. Like one set loose among the dead. Like the slain that lie in the grave. Like those whom you remember no more, for they are cut off from your hand. Listen how the New King James translates verses 6 and 7 and speaks to this fear of impending death because of the extent of the otherworldliness in the affliction that he too recognizes. He says, you have laid me in the lowest pit, in darkness, in the depths. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you have afflicted me with all your waves. In verses 13 to 18 of Psalm 88, he writes, But I, O Lord, cry to you. In the morning my prayer comes before you. O Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? The same concern in Psalm 102. And so the fear isn't so much that God is going to strike you down right where you stand, but your affliction can ultimately result in your experiencing the terror and helplessness associated with God no longer being present with you. So we see the author is reflecting on his affliction. He's meditating on it. He's pondering it. And he wants to know if it's happening because God is hiding his face from him. And he knows what happens when God hides his face from men. And that leads to a sense of fear about what that could imply. Here's part of the reason for me about why this affliction is so serious for this unknown author. Notice what the author is not saying in this psalm. Nowhere in the psalm is he defending himself. He's not trying to convince God that he hasn't done anything shameful. He's not justifying himself here, complaining that he doesn't deserve to be treated this way. And I think now we're starting to get to the heart of the issue for the psalm. His only concern seems to be that God not hide his face from him. And this implies that he knows the difference. He knows when his intimacy with God is intact, and he knows when it isn't. And when his intimacy with God isn't intact, he knows something's wrong. And he knows he'd better move quickly to find the remedy. But here's the case in Psalm 102. We don't know why he's been so deeply afflicted. There's no confession of sin as there often is in other lament psalms. Yet on the other hand, he's not professing that he's righteous and faultless either. And that this shouldn't be happening to him. 
Here's something else to consider as well. In both Psalm 88 and Psalm 102, the authors lay the source of their afflictions directly at God's feet. Psalm 88, 14 to 18, for example. He says, afflicted and close to death from my youth up, I suffer your terrors, I am helpless. Your wrath has swept over me, your dreadful assaults destroy me. They, your dreadful assaults, surround me like a flood all day long that close in on me together. You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. Look at how the author of Psalm 88 lays all of this at God's sovereign feet, just like in Psalm 102. God hiding his face from him is equivalent to God casting his soul away here in Psalm 88. His affliction and subsequent feeling of death is a result of God's terrors and wrath sweeping over him, he says. God's dreadful assaults are destroying him, he says, and are the reason that his friends have abandoned him. In both of these Psalms, 88 and 102, the authors are identifying these terrors and alarms as coming from God's hand. So as I said, we don't know why they are so afflicted, but it's evident that God is the source of it. So what are we to make of this? We do know that in Psalm 102, the author is crying out amidst unexplained suffering and affliction. And just as in other scriptures, he lays that effect at God's feet. In Psalm 102, 9 to 11, he gives the reason why his enemies taunt him and deride him and use his name for a curse. He says, it's because I eat ashes like bread and mingle tears with my drink because of your indignation and anger. For you have taken me up and thrown me down. My days are like an evening shadow. I wither away like grass. What a description. He's saying, I'm a laughingstock because of this horrible grief and affliction your indignation and anger have caused me. And before he's through, he laments his affliction again one more time near the end of the psalm in 23 and 24. He says, he has broken my strength in mid-course. He has shortened my days. Oh my God, I say, take me not away in the midst of my days. You know, when I read that, I'm thinking that he's saying, you know, I was just going about my life, thinking everything was okay, that our relationship was intact, and in midstream, in the middle of my life, in your providence and in your omnipotent power, you weakened me. You broke my strength. You afflicted me, and I realized my utter helplessness. And for the life of me, I don't know why. When human beings find themselves in dire straits like this, with no uncertain, with no certain answers as to why afflictions might be happening, we start to realize the helplessness in our human strength. 
Maybe that's what God's doing. And what a wake-up call it is when we finally come to terms with the immensity of our limitations before God. And when we grasp how easily God's power can arrest me in the middle of my life and cause me to reflect deeply on my circumstances. And so the plea here seems to be, don't let your power and dread intimidate me into being terrorized by you. This is how I feel when you hide your face from me. And as Christians, we sense the dilemma for the author. Certainly he must be thinking, I just don't get it. It's the wicked who have every reason to be terrorized because they stretch their hand out against God. In fact, it's a well-known fact in Scripture that God hides his face from his enemies, not from his covenant-keeping children. So we recognize the concern for these authors of Scripture who appear to be receiving the same treatment that a pagan unbeliever deserves, and yet they have no idea why they're under such unexplained affliction. What are we to make of this? Of course, unexplained doesn't mean meaningless affliction. There's no such thing as meaningless suffering for the believer in the scriptures. And this is not about unexplainable suffering. We believe all suffering is ultimately explainable. We do not know the reasons for our current suffering, but there are answers yet to come that the psalmist in 102 finds. In all of this reflection about his otherworldly affliction, the author remembers, above all else, that God is a God of mercy and grace. And so the question the psalm seems to be begging us to consider is, what is the only reasonable attitude toward incomprehensible misfortune other than to simply bow to the divine displeasure? Folks, listen, nowhere in the Psalms do we see that these afflictions are somehow written off as coming from some impersonal fate or some kind of karmic thing. These afflictions are clearly the result of the personal actions of God toward the individuals. And this connection of the believer with God's divine displeasure is never due to God unleashing some malicious hatred or sinister power upon the individual just for the sake of being vindictive. <laughs> yeah. Even when there's no intelligible human justification for the affliction, there's not even an attempt to make it some source thing as demonic. What we do see over and over again is that the author's responses to their afflictions are simply the manifestation of the displeasure of God's unsearchable greatness. Let me unwrap that a little bit. 
And that's why comprehending the affliction that comes from his hand is so far above human conception. Even in the incomprehensible afflictions, there's no calling into question God's divine majesty. He isn't any less perfectly just, holy, and righteous because the afflictions that he's ministered He's ministering to his children are sometimes intense. Nowhere is the nature of his character distorted into some diabolically savage anger. But most startling of all, and folks, the most assuring thing to us is that none of these afflictions exclude the author's belief in God's divine and eternal loving kindness towards them either. And that's the true understanding of that Latin phrase, mysterium tremendum et fascinans. To tremble with fascination at the unsearchable greatness of who God is. A mystery that will deeply attract you but repels you at the same time because he's so outside the bounds of our understanding. Even when these dreadful afflictions are attributed to God, there's no lessening of the psalmist's confidence in the absolute certainty of God's readiness to comfort and to minister to and protect his people. That's why it's so incomprehensible. Even though he might seem less than eager to rescue them right at this moment. Even in the biblical stories where all events of this kind fall under the category of misfortune sent by God, and there are many in the Bible, there's a continued belief in God's divine loving kindness toward his covenantal people. The fact that the author holds on to God's greatness and majesty, even in the midst of great suffering and affliction, forces us to consider that God is simply beyond the reach of human comprehension. And the biblical way you get through it is simply by embracing an attitude of wondering adoration. That's how you come back around again, which is always the way back into trusting God's goodness when we are in the lament psalms. You can't make the divine power and majesty and mystery of God manageable by applying human reason to it. This is why living a life of faith is so challenging for so many people. They just can't put it together. You simply must find yourself worshiping the incomprehensible greatness of God, our creator, by humbly resigning yourself to the truth that in all of this, we are left only to be in awe of him. And so we see the author of Psalm 102 is in a wretched state. And there's an expectation that God not only knows how to deal with it, but can help him find his way back to normal. 
And this notion of finding one's way back to God in the midst of affliction and suffering is a key element in the lament psalms. Virtually every lament psalm carries this notion. Here's the most curious thing about Psalm 102 to me. As is typical of the lament psalms, the author finds comfort not in the immediate remedy of the affliction, but in the recognition of the security he has because God is eternal. He says, but you, O Lord, are enthroned forever. You are remembered throughout all generations. For the Lord builds up Zion. He appears in his glory. He regards the prayer of the destitute and does not despise their prayer. What's curious coming from the psalmist in 102, isn't it? And whether the writers are describing how magnificently blessed they are in their relationship to the Lord, or whether they are in the throes of complete brokenness before God, their words are recorded and given back to us so that even centuries later, their words will serve as a sure fountain of blessing. You might be trying to fit that together with the rest of Psalm 102. Because the blessing in the midst of affliction is that always we have before us in the Psalms a great reminder of the truth of God's holiness, the truth of his absolute otherness, the truth of his transcendence over all creation, his everlasting majesty and his strength and his compassion and his mercy, all of which are held up for believing covenantal children as our ultimate security, no matter our present circumstances. The blessing comes full circle in the realization that God isn't some catastrophic character, but the divine Lord of his faithful people. God applies his power on our behalf because he is in covenant with us. And so even though man draws near to God in awe and trembling, there's always the deep-seated acknowledgement that God remains kind and loyal and ready to comfort and relieve and ready to protect. His power is also capable of giving and promising eternal life to his children. And even in the expression of our complete brokenness before God, the words of the psalmists are designed to set us free to live a life filled with love for the Lord and deep wonder and reflection and submission as to the reality of this person even in the midst of unbearable affliction. And ultimately, the Lament Psalms aim to show us the value in our choosing to move toward a disposition in life that is entirely optimistic and cheerful. Thank you for this morning, by the way. Entirely optimistic and cheerful because we, too, know who God is no matter the circumstances we find ourselves in each day. 
So I have a happy thought in all of this. You're probably waiting for that, right? Scott, you were waiting for it? Okay. The very first step in this freedom to choose to live a life that is entirely optimistic and cheerful and rejoicing and worshipful, regardless of the circumstances you might be experiencing, is to realize that you are not in control of your experiences. But you are in control of the way you respond to them. And even here in Psalm 102, where we have just the most debilitating and excruciating description of the extent of this author's affliction, the psalm encourages us to see through the momentary affliction to the eternality of God and subsequently to his eternal promises. So he recognizes the eternality of God in verses 25 to 28. He says, of old you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment, but you are the same, and your years have no end. Here's the clincher. The children of your servants shall dwell secure. Their offspring shall be established before you. So as God's people, we have in his eternality a pledge of our continuance and salvation. So the psalmist desires his situation to be remembered by future generations in verse 18. And he says, let this be recorded for a generation to come so that people yet to be created may praise the Lord. And here's something interesting In verses 18 and in verse 21 are the only times the word praise occurs in this psalm. And it's not coming from the psalmist's voice. He's not the one who does the praising. Nowhere in the song is praise coming from his lips. The affliction recorded here in Psalm 102 is recorded so that the people yet to be born that are going to come after the author in future generations so that they could praise the Lord. Not not argue with him, not challenge his wisdom or his existence, not question his motives in the way he delves out affliction, but to praise him. And so I got to admit, I was kind of confused when I came to this part and I sat down with Travis and I said, Travis, I'm sorry, I don't get it. Why are the people that are going to come after this psalmist, why are they going to praise the Lord, but he's not going to praise the Lord? And he got me thinking about this track. Because the author foresees what he knows the covenant-keeping God is obligated to do. He hasn't rescued him from his affliction yet, but he knows he's going to rescue him. And he knows that he must rescue him because he's absolutely certain as to who God is. And there's the tension of the blessing and the terror in knowing God intimately. 
And he writes that he looked down from his holy height, from heaven the Lord looked at the earth to hear the groans of the prisoners, to set free those who were doomed to die, that they may declare in Zion the name of the Lord. And in Jerusalem, they may declare his praise when peoples gather together and kingdoms to worship the Lord. And so the the author of Psalm 102 knows God is going to be moved in spite of his moral perfection and his complete unapproachable holiness and the purity that separates him from every other created thing to hear with interest and compassion and concern the misery of his people so he can set them free from their inevitable death so that they will see what the psalmist hasn't seen yet, God's mercy in rescuing his people, so that they will declare and praise all the characteristics of Yahweh's divine name when all of his believing children from all the nations of the world are gathered together to worship him. And folks, when I understood this, Thank you, Travis. When I understood this, I was reminded of Zechariah's prophecy about his son, John the Baptist, in Luke 1, and 79. Let me conclude with this thought. It says there, and his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant with them. And you, child, will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the dayspring shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. That's such a great word, episkeptomai, shall visit us. Jesus is the fulfillment of the author's reason for all the future generations to praise God. The author knew God would hear the groans of the prisoners and set free those who were doomed to die because of their sin. And Jesus is the promise that all generations who have faith in God and the reason for recording Psalm 102 in the first place. Episkeptomai means to inspect and examine with your eyes, to look upon something in order to help it or benefit it. The author of Psalm 102's promise and reason for praise is that God in his holiness and in his perfection and in his power and in his mercy would look down from his heavenly and holy habitation like the psalmist says in 102 and be attentive to the afflictions and groaning of his people. And the author of Psalm 102 was assured that this would happen as he was sure that he had been deeply afflicted by the same hand of God. 
The author of Psalm 102 knew that God would hear the groans of his people and rescue them from their pending death because of their sin in the perfect way. His visitation to us would bring his care and his provision and his benefit and blessing. Oh, folks, don't forget the blessing that's hidden in the life of affliction. But promise to come even in the midst of the groaning to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for these great words and the time to think deeply about what you've presented here. Father, help us to be relieved in our affliction knowing who you are, that you are incomprehensible, yet promise to rescue us. Father, you are great and merciful, powerful, ready to comfort, ready to save Father, help us to recall those things and encourage each other with those thoughts as we continue to pray this morning and to sing and to lift up your name in Christ's name. Amen.